This is an ABC podcast. If you'd like to run, have you ever thought about how you run? In the way that you move, are you setting yourself up for injuries, for example? Ever thought about having your running gait analysed? So what we're going to do is get you to run probably 10 or 12 times up and down. Okay. I'm going to take some video from the side to have a look at how you're moving from the side. I'm also going to take some video from the front and back. All right. Your initial impressions. So just checking your step rate. It's pretty good. Doing some interesting things with your arms. Sometimes it's really hard to pick things up in real time. So we'll have a look in slow motion on the video now. Oh no, slow mo. Have you had any injuries to your shoulder? No. This is Sporty. Hello, I'm Amanda Smith. Also ahead, if you've got joint pain, arthritis in your hips or knees, say, what you can do about it. Starting though with, is it ever too late to take up physical activity? For lots of people, busy lives while you're establishing career, home, relationships, kids, it can all mean that exercise and sport drops off the radar. But later on, when you get a bit more time, maybe you want to get active. But does it feel like maybe you've left it too late? How late can you leave it to develop the kind of muscle mass and strength and function that's going to benefit you into old age? Scientists in the UK have studied people who took up training later in life. Jamie McPhee led the study. He's Professor of Musculoskeletal Physiology at Manchester Metropolitan University. And Jamie, before we get on to the specifics of who you studied and what you found... Why did you want to find out about late-starting athletes? Give me the background. We've been studying very athletic older people for the past 10 years or so. And the reason we're interested in athletic older people is because they are different from the norm. In the normal population through ageing, you see a steady but very definite and progressive decline of muscle mass and bone density. But these masters athletes, they book that trend. So they train by day and dance by night. <laughs> so we're really interested in them. Uh, but what you want to know is if people who take up training later in life, after 50, can get the same sort of benefits as you've described from people who've been doing it for years and years and years. And, and to date, there's been very little information about that. Well, that's right. Over those 10 years or so, we've generally assumed that these older athletic people have trained all of their lives. But in speaking to individuals over the past few years, actually, it's not unusual really to hear people say they've only been training for five years. So we're testing them at the age of about 70. They're performing really well in sports, but they only took up training after they retired. So give me some more detail about who was in this study. The study included about 200 very athletic older people, primarily British Masters athletes. The vast majority were endurance runners. About half of the overall uh, numbers of people who took part in the study had only taken up training after the age of 50. So when we looked at the two groups, the people who trained all of their lives compared with those who, who came to training much later, 
there was actually very little or no difference actually in the size of their muscles in the legs and the whole body and very little difference in, in the bone density so that's a marker of bone health no difference between them in the amount of fat that they they carry on their body but both groups had much lower levels of fat and larger muscles than people who were of a similar age but not athletic so so this is really saying that um, the late starters who before they started running would have already been experiencing reduced muscle mass and strength over a couple of decades, because it starts when you're about 30. Did they actually reverse that decline? Well, that's the point, and that's the really interesting thing. When you look at um, general trends in the population for muscle size and muscle strength and muscle power, you do see that certainly after the age of 40, they decline progressively. That decline is about 1% per year, 10% per decade. So those people who come to training at the age of 60, you would have expected them to have experienced up to a 20% decline. And so you might expect that at the age of 70, when we're testing them, they would still have lower muscle mass than the people who trained all of their lives and therefore avoided that progressive decline. But that really isn't what we saw. So there's something going on and it looks like you can reverse those effects of ageing. Now, this is really good news for the late starting runners, isn't it? But it's kind of annoying for those who've been at it for decades, you know, to find that they actually had no advantage over these Johnny-come-latelys. <laughs> well, yeah, that's one way to look at it. But I think the real comparison is against the general population. Because when you take those people who've been training, um, they've really dedicated their lives to training, their physical function, their overall health, health of the cardiovascular system, health of the muscles, health of the bones, they are much better than people in the general population. So that's a better comparison for those people who trained all of their lives to make. <laughs> Fair enough. They'll come out better off in that case. But there are some aspects, you know, that, that can't be prevented through regular running. One measurement that we previously reported is balance. If you take a typical 70-year-old, if they stand on one leg and close their eyes, they can balance for maybe three or four seconds. When you take those same measurements in very athletic older people, despite their large muscles and good bone health, their balance is still really quite bad. And what that tells us is running's great for the cardiovascular system. It helps to keep body fat levels down. It's good for muscle size and muscle strength. But what it doesn't do is maintain very careful control of the body to maintain an upright posture and therefore avoid falls. In order to improve balance, you need to include some balance training. Right. Right. Now, the older athletes that you studied, both the late and the early starters, as you've described them, they're pretty serious masters competitors and they trained a lot. Can your findings with them, Jamie, be extrapolated at all, either to other sports and activities or to those who train less intensively? I'm wondering if there's a message for all of us in this. That's the crucial question. 
And we don't have the straightforward answer to that just yet. But I think that the point is that if people are reaching the age of 50 and even the age of 60 and they haven't previously taken part in very intense exercise, it really isn't too late for them to start exercising. As long as they're very careful and avoid injury, you can steadily and progressively ramp up the intensity and your body will adapt. And the way in which the body adapts actually leads to dramatic improvements for health and overall physical function. So I think they can be extrapolated, yes. The human body is a wondrous thing, isn't it? And Jamie McPhee is Professor of Musculoskeletal Physiology at Manchester Metropolitan University in the UK and the lead author of this study into late-starting older athletes. Encouragement for all of us, Jamie. Thank you so much for joining us here on Sporty. You're welcome. It's Amanda Smith with you here on Sporty. And all this talk of it's never too late to take up running or some other form of being physically active, well, it's all very well, but what if it hurts your knees or your hips, the pain of osteoarthritis? Eva Boland is an exercise physiologist. And Eva, as you get older, when your joints, particularly knees and hips, when they do start to give you some trouble, what, first of all, what's actually happening in the joint? Uh, we know that those that are suffering from arthritis have an increase in inflammation in the joint. Certain proteins within that joint space, within that cartilage, that are being affected in the knee, it's pain, stiffness, feeling like you're 100 when you get out of bed, an inability to tolerate high-impact exercise and pain with squatting, lunging, bending down, doing a lot of gardening, that sort of thing. In the hip, it's reaching down. Things like putting your shoes and socks on that become particularly problematic. And the risk factors, the really big ones, are physical inactivity and being overweight. Those two things really affect the health of the joint. The thing is, with this kind of joint discomfort or pain when you move, the tendency, of course, is to not want to exercise, isn't it? Because it Absolutely. hurts. And to of feel course. that exercise is, you know, likely to damage the joint even more. That also puts you off. Is this the case, though? There was a really recent study that came out looking at the beliefs of those currently suffering from osteoarthritis, and that was mild all the way up to severe and the overwhelming patient beliefs is that it's bone on bone down there, that it will get worse over time, and that exercise will make it worse. And you're absolutely right, Amanda, if you have those beliefs, of course you're going to stop exercising. You are going to reduce the load through that joint. But what we see is a weakening of the structures around that joint, the muscles that support the joint. We see a worsening of pain over time. And of course, the less you move, the more weight you're going to put on. That's a problem. And so we see this flow on effect. So if we look at the overall management, then changing those patient beliefs becomes a cornerstone of our treatment. So what, what then 
does exercise do for to a degenerative joint as far as symptoms and any kind yes. of changes? So cartilage actually atrophies when we have a decrease in load, a reduction in physical activity. So we've found, and what the recent research has shown is that when we exercise, we get a decrease in inflammatory cytokines. These are the inflammatory mediators that we think are in part related to the degradation of cartilage and an increase in pain. We also know that exercise therapy is at least as effective as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and up to two to three times more effective than paracetamol for pain severity. So it is our first line treatment for arthritis. So what kind of exercising then do you recommend? That's where the assessment from your health professional, your exercise physiologist, your physiotherapist comes into it because this will really depend on where you're at. If you haven't been active for a long time, throwing you into a high-impact running-based program will be a disaster. You will have a pain flare-up that will last probably for days and then you will think, I'm not exercising, I tried it and it didn't work. And I think the really important point here is if the load exceeds the capacity of the tissue, it's not going to be successful. So joints don't have a direct blood supply, which means the way that that joint gets nourishment is by moving. And by moving, we flush the synovial fluid, that's the fluid inside the joint, around the joint. Getting that delicious movement of synovial fluid is the first step. Walking can be a really good one. Getting into the pool can be a very effective way of moving your joints without putting too much initial load through the joint. So then what about running, Eva? Can running be beneficial for older joints, for, for joints even with arthritis? Yes, there's been a major study called the Osteoarthritis Initiative and that study was in the US and they had close to 5,000 participants in that study with or at risk of osteoarthritis. They followed them over four years and they found that those who were runners within that cohort had a decrease in osteoarthritis symptoms versus non-runners. So it's really a myth that that high impact can be bad for joints in the long term. Now, like I said, if you're not ready for that impact, it won't be successful. But if we slowly, slowly build you up and we increase the tissue capacity at a rate that it can handle, we can slowly start to introduce impact-based exercise. The thing that I think we need to be mindful of in terms of the risk of arthritis, one of the things that we do know is previous injury, particularly an ACL injury, will predispose someone to an increase in arthritis. So there are some other factors there, but by and large, if we slowly build you up, your joint will be able to tolerate that. How then do you encourage people who've got, you know, you've got joint pain in your, your knees or hips and you, and you are wary, you're going to be wary of exercise. Of How do you encourage people to, to believe what you're saying? If you can tap into someone's deeper motivations, 
Do you want to be able to go and walk with your friends? Do you want to be able to play golf? Do you want to be able to do a few hours in the garden without paying for it for days? Do you want to be able to play with your grandchildren? So if we can help to educate patients with arthritis that exercise in the long term is going to help to reduce their pain and increase their quality of life. And if they know that their treatment providers are not going to throw them in the deep end with running or going and doing a step class, for example, that we will do this together, that we will have a pain management and a pain flare-up plan, then that can really, really help that person to have the confidence that exercise is going to be beneficial. The other thing is having the discussion with that patient about exactly how much pain is allowable. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but when we first start moving, there are going to be sensations there. So often we say, are you okay if your pain is around a two to a five whilst you're exercising? The salient point here is that that pain must return to baseline the next morning. And that's how we know we've got the loading right. And Eva Boland is an exercise physiologist in Canberra. Eva, thank you for your expertise. It's good to talk to you. My pleasure. Thanks, Amanda. And here on Sporty, let's now explore one way you might be able to keep active despite injuries and things like joint pain. RN producer Buffy Gorilla is a keen runner, but she's recently just started thinking about how she runs and could she be a better runner by changing the way she moves, if that's even possible. She's visiting Dr Christian Barton, a fellow runner whose expertise is in running injuries and the science of gait analysis. It's very easy to retrain the way someone runs. In fact, it's a lot easier to develop better running skills than it is to, say, develop your tennis skills or your golf skills. So running is a task that is quite simple and people have ingrained ways in which they run, but with a bit of work and a bit of effort in terms of training technique and maybe addressing muscle balances or muscle strength deficits that might be there that stop you from running well, you can definitely run better. And how can you tell if someone is running well or not? There's lots of debate and discussion around the world about what is the best way to run from an efficiency perspective. There's probably a few key things that we would look at. So we know that something like step rate or cadence, how many steps per minute you take, seems to link to performance and also potentially linked to injury. So if you've got a low cadence, that's something we can can look at. We also look at things like where you land relative to where your centre of mass is. So if you have a big, long stride landing out in front of your centre of mass, then that's something that puts higher impact forces on your body and can potentially impact on injuries, but importantly is probably causing breaking forces and slowing you down. So that's a couple of key things we would look at. All right. Should I get ready to be assessed? Sure. To test my strength and flexibility, Dr. Barton started me out on his paper-covered doctor's table to run me through what seemed to be a series of modified Pilates poses. There was a one-legged bridge. I'm going to hold that up on your left, and what I want you to do is push up nice and high for me. There were a couple of hip openers, and at one point, I got puffed out doing a side leg lift against Just keep his it back hand. A bit further. I want you to push up as hard as you can again. The last exercise, he got me jumping up and down, holding a four kilo weight to test how much extra weight my knees and ankles could take. Everything looks 
great. You've got decent muscle capacity that I think you should be able to run well. And if we see some running mechanics, which we could maybe improve, then it should be actually quite easy to teach you how to do that. Now, a question to you is, do you do your running outside or do you do it on the treadmill? I do most of my running outside. So we might try and have a bit of a look at your running outside. It does make our assessment a little bit harder, but we've got a good camera that we can do it and we'll show you some of the pictures when we, we finish having a look at it. All right, I'm excited. Let's give us a whirl. So we're outside. What are we going to do? What do? You'll see a tree just ahead of you. It's not too far away. I'm going to get you to run between the tree and then behind us is a stop sign. So what we're going to do is just get you to run probably 10 or 12 times up and down. Okay. I'm going to take some video from the side to have a look at how you're moving from the side. I'm also going to take some video from the front and back. So just run as if you're going out for, say, a five-kilometer run. So All right. I'm going to do it. All right. Your initial impressions. So just checking your step rate, it sits around about 170 steps per minute, which is pretty good. Doing some interesting things with your arms. Sometimes it's really hard to pick things up in real time. So we'll have a look in slow motion on the video now. Oh no, slow-mo. Have you had any injuries to your shoulder? Or no. no, but I feel like my right shoulder sometimes is a bit slopey. It will be interesting when you have a look at your running. Okay. Well, Dr. Barton loads up my results. Let's meet another runner who had her gait analyzed after being told it would be best if she never ran again. My name is Jane Fitzgerald. I'm 46 and I'm an anaesthetist who likes to run. I think I probably started to get a little bit of knee discomfort in my late 30s and I just ignored it. And then about two or three weeks before my 40th birthday, had a nasty fall, not running related, but basically bashed my knee on a big steel shopping trolley actually. I had trouble walking for about a week and then thought, no, nah, I can't not be running when I'm about to turn 40. So I started running again and distinctly remember sort of doing this weird run limp thing that was really, really uncomfortable. My husband organised for me to have an MRI because he's a radiologist, which is both handy and inconvenient in that I find out more than I should probably know. And the MR showed that my knee was in a pretty bad state. I'd probably been running with fairly suboptimal technique for a long time, worn my knee down, and I think the Bunnings accident was the final straw, basically, finished off a meniscus that was probably not long for this world anyway. The radiologists that my husband works with all stood around the console and shook their heads and just said, tell your wife she should never, ever run again. And I took a few months off, which I suspect I probably needed to do anyway, just to let the knee settle down. In that time, I saw a physiotherapist who was also a runner, who thankfully was not scared to swim against the tide. That person was Dr. Christian Barton. And he said, look, I think you can run again, but you're going to have to change the way you run and you're going to have to do some strength work to protect your knee. The first thing he said to me was, OK, you overstride and you need to get your step count up, which I found really difficult. Learning how to run with a, with a faster cadence was a challenge and I managed to stream music at a particular step rate. So for probably a good 18 months to two years, I was running with music constantly in my ears, which I don't love, but it got my step count up. So I very carefully 
started running again and started going to the gym, which I still don't love. And over time was able to pick up the distances and run pain-free. I've got good strength now. It's just a case of managing my own expectations and not overtraining, which I have a very strong tendency to do. And what would you recommend to someone who is kind of on the fence about having their gait analysed? If you're serious about your running and you want to keep doing it into old age, there's not really a downside to getting your gait analysed. All right. The moment of truth, Dr. Barton. Let's see what we got. All right. So when we have a look at your foot strike, you'd be what we consider a rear foot striker or a heel striker. A lot of people get very obsessed about strike pattern, about whether you're a heel striker or a forefoot striker. It's probably not so much whether you're one or the other. What we don't want to see is that you're aggressively one or the other. So if we have a look at your foot, your foot's relatively parallel to the ground. So that's a good thing. If you're a heel striker and you've got your toes pointing up really high in the air, then that usually means you can have quite high impact forces. But for you, that sits really nicely. So you are a heel striker, but it's a very soft heel strike that we can see. If we move up further, we can see looking at your knee that you've got around about 20 degrees or so of knee flexion. And that's really good because that means you can absorb some load through your quadriceps muscles. If you're landing with a really straight knee, that would put a lot of load onto the internal structures of your knee. So things like your meniscus and also your kneecap is in a bad position to absorb load. So we often see people have knee pain as a result of that. The other thing that we look for from this perspective is what happens as you go through what we call mid-stance. So after your foot hits the ground, what happens to your ankle and what happens to your knee? And what we want to see is you don't get too much bend through your ankle or what we call ankle dorsiflexion. You're around about 20 to 30 degrees of ankle dorsiflexion, so that looks really good. Typically, if you get more dorsiflexion, that will put more loads onto your Achilles tendon. And so Achilles tendinopathy is a really common injury that we see in people. And if we look at the knee, you get about 45 degrees of knee bend. The more knee bend you get, the more load goes onto your kneecap or patellofemoral joint. And that's another really common injury that we see. But for you, that's relatively normal. So, so far, all looking pretty good. I feel like there's going to be a however or a but in there, Dr. Barton. (laughs) If we have a look at things from behind and from in front, we can get a, a bit more understanding about some other mechanics. Oh, yeah. There it is. Slopey shoulder. And so if we have a look at your arms, what you typically do is you hold your right arm down and your elbow is really straight and your left arm, your elbow is quite bent. So it's quite asymmetrical. The point about that is if your right shoulder is maybe not in an ideal position, which we look at, you're kind of not using it very much, that makes it a lot harder for you to generate force through your left leg. So we see this sling type effect where the muscles through your upper body on the right side help the leg muscles of your left side to generate power. So how should I be holding my arm when I run? Yeah, most people would have their arm pretty similar to what you've got on the left side. So about 90 degrees of elbow bend and that allows you to really drive through your arms to generate some force. So it's interesting to look at that but the big philosophy for me is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If you're running and you're happy, then we probably don't want to worry too much about it. So we see people who go out and they try and change their strike pattern because they think that that will make them run faster and they get an injury as a result of that they try and buy a brand new pair of shoes which is very different to the shoes they normally wear and they get injured as a result of that or they change the position of their upper body or something else with their running mechanics and they get injured as a result of that so if you're running along and you're happy then just leave things alone if you want to run faster then you can maybe start to work on things but be careful about changing too much too quickly how's your knee feeling jane oh knee feels great knee feels the knee just doesn't trouble me anymore it's great 
As a fellow runner, I just had one more question for Jane. And what do you love about running? I just feel calm after I've run. Even though I might go out quite stressed or anxious about something, when I come home, I'm all zen. It's really great. Well, enjoy the rest of your run. Thank you very much, Puffy. Jane Fitzgerald, back on the track after being told she shouldn't ever run again. And before her, physiotherapist Christian Barton, who's a world leader in running retraining. And they were with RN producer and runner Buffy Gorilla. Sporty comes to you on ABC RN, also Grandstand Digital, Radio Australia and ABC TV Channel 26. But wait, there's more. As a podcast, it's on the ABC Listen app or available wherever else you get your podcasts from. Nadia Hume produces Sporty, and I'm Amanda Smith. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.